0: Amen. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks again for the welcome. Good to be with you again today in Windsor. I'm not here next week, but the last week, God willing, so you might want to plan your activities around that. I'm sure. Um, it's it's lovely to be here. We're we're thinking together. Uh, I think maybe appropriately in September uh, about the things that we possess in Christ. Did that last Sunday morning. Uh, today about the ministry that He has given to us that we are to exercise, and then on the last Sunday of the month, thinking together about the foundation that we are to build upon. So, our scripture reading today, then, is First Corinthians chapter 2. So, there are three related themes. Last week was in chapter 1, and then today in chapter 2, and next Sunday morning in the third chapter. So, First Corinthians chapter 2, And we're reading the first five verses together. Let's hear God's Word. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Amen. You're probably aware that there is a great deal of confusion about the nature of Christian ministry. On television and in film, the Christian minister is, of course, an object of ridicule. I was reminded of this just the other day when I clicked onto a channel and discovered there was pride and prejudice being shown. And Jane Austen's depiction of the clergyman, the Reverend Mr. Collins, is of a groveling sycophant. Can you remember him? I couldn't even begin to imitate him. He thinks only of prestige and position. He lives only for the goodwill of his patron, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and his whole demeanor is actually quite ludicrous. In Scripture, however, the picture of the minister or pastor or shepherd of God's people is altogether different. In the Bible, the minister is a man of conviction who knows what he believes and whose eye is firmly fixed on his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our passage this morning gives us an insight into the nature of Christian ministry. This applies, let me say very quickly, not just to pastors, not just to those who are in positions of upfront leadership, but in fact to the whole people of God. Now all that we have read here in this passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 2 is against a background of problems that had arisen in the Corinthian setting. These problems may be summarized in two ways. First of all, they were a people who were divided. They were divided. In chapter 1 verse 10, Paul makes an appeal for unity. And uh, you will know that the Corinthians had already split into various factions. So, there were some of them who said, I belong to Paul. Others said, I belong to Apollos. Some said, I belong to Peter. And imagine this, some even said, we are the Christ party. So, they were divided. Not only that, but in the second place, they were dissatisfied. They were dissatisfied, for example, with the message that message was of a crucified Messiah, which to the average person in the street in Corinth was a nonsense. It was either a scandal to them or it was simply foolish. It flew in the face of human wisdom. But the Corinthians, of course, had bought into a popular Greek enthusiasm for wisdom, and so they were dissatisfied with the message. Not only that, but also dissatisfied with the messenger. The apostle Paul himself had brought the good news to Corinth, but now it appeared that some teachers had arisen in that setting, and they had begun to cast aspersions on Paul. Uh, You could look, for example, you don't need to do it now, but for example, at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10, where it says, some say his letters are witty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Now, I don't know if you've ever done any public speaking or you've ever preached before, but uh, if somebody said to you on the way out on a Sunday morning, Well, uh, I got an email from you during the week or a letter, and it seemed fairly weighty and forceful, but I listened to you this morning, and actually, your speaking is totally unimpressive. It it amounts to nothing. I don't know how you'd feel. I imagine I'd feel quite deflated. I might not, if you say that to me, I might not come back to Windsor again. There's a thought. But how would Paul have felt? He must have felt under pressure, receiving that kind of accolade. These were the criticisms that had already begun to circulate. They were a dissatisfied people, dissatisfied with the message, crucified Christ, dissatisfied with the messenger, the apostle. And so here in chapter 2, Paul reflects on his coming to Corinth, and he addresses their dissatisfaction. And in so doing… He provides God's perspective, a heavenly outlook, on the nature of authentic ministry. This is what I want us to think about together as we embark or launch out uh, on a September's work here in Windsor. Now, three main features of this ministry that I want you to notice in the five verses that we've read. First of all, authentic ministry is always self-effacing. Just for a moment in your mind's eye and imagination, I'd like you to picture Paul at the airport on his arrival at Corinth. The customs men pull him in. They say, we'd like you to open your suitcase. So, we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that the Apostle has packed for his visit to Corinth? Corinth. Now, if you were going to Corinth, bearing in mind, as we saw last Sunday, that it was the commercial and cultural center of the ancient Mediterranean, I think you'd want to make an impression. And so you'd certainly have packed some wisdom. You'd pack some skilled speech because that was very popular in the lecture halls in Corinth. In short, you'd bring a clever package. You'd want to make an impression upon these people. So as he opens his suitcase, we discover what not in fact wisdom, because he says, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. Speech-making was highly prized among the Greeks. It was even a form of popular entertainment. But Paul didn't come to Corinth to win a prize in oratory, and so he says that he came literally, as it could be translated, not according to excellence or word of wisdom. There are two things there that he rejects. The first is the term word, uh, which in the context the NIV translates as eloquence. It probably refers to the manner of his speech rather than the content of it. And the second word is wisdom, and that indicates the content. And so, what the Apostle is saying is this, I did not come to Corinth in such a way as to distinguish myself. I didn't bring the wisdom you love or the eloquence you desire. So, he says in verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. So, he did bring to them a word, but it wasn't the word they expected. He brought them a logos, a word, but it was a word of the cross. And then to this word, he adds kerygma or preaching or proclamation. Now, I suggest to you that if you'd been going, flying into ancient Corinth, and they made you open your suitcase, I think we'd all have brought some wisdom because we'd have done a little bit of research, and we'd have found out what made them tick And we'd have said, the thing that is prized most highly in ancient Corinth is speech-making. It's oratory. We better bring some of that. And Paul says, no, I didn't bring any of that. Instead, I brought a word of the cross. Now, when he says that he did not engage in persuasion or persuasive argument, it doesn't mean that his preaching lacked persuasion or lacked argument, because elsewhere he says, because we fear the Lord, we persuade men. Paul persuaded people all right. He used what Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call logic on fire. But what he did not do was to use the kind of persuasion that was found among the Greeks. The kind of persuasion that was found among them was where the power lay in the person and in his delivery. You see the difference? Whenever the Greeks were listening to speech-making or oratory, the power of that always lay in the person and in their delivery. But the Apostle Paul says, no, I didn't come with that. That's not the key thing. The key thing is the message of the cross. That's where power lies. So, these are the things that Paul did not pack in his luggage as he came to Corinth. And so, we ask then, well, how did he come? And he tells us in verse 3, he came, he says, in weakness, fear, and with much trembling. Now, there's been a little bit of discussion among the commentators about that word weakness. Some people think that that means the apostle had a physical malady at this time in his life, and he's referring to that in this comment. We don't know the answer to that. Uh, But then he says, in fear and with much trembling. We can speak with a little bit more authority about that, because in the book of Acts chapter 18, we have the account of the apostles' visit to Corinth, and it's clear from Luke's account that Paul was full of fear coming to Corinth. And so, the Lord, in chapter 18 verse 9, gave him reassurance in a vision. The Lord said this to him, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Well, I suggest this would not look very good on your CV. Weak and shaking with fear. But the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember this, and he wanted them to remember it, to show them just how unlike the philosophers of this age he was when he came with the gospel to Corinth. And so, I want to apply that to my ministry, and I want you to apply it to the ministry that you have here in Windsor. Authentic ministry in the church, and as we go into the world, is always self-effacing. It is a humble ministry. It is a dependent ministry. It puts no store in its own excellence. Rather, it constantly And always depends on the excellence of Jesus Christ. Now, that is not to say, and I want to qualify it slightly, that is not to say that we should not strive for excellence in all that we do. So, let me say to the pastors here, or those who preach, in our understanding of and presentation of the message, we must strive for excellence in your teaching of the Sunday school class or junior church. I know that I think your groups do a month at a time, so there are folk doing it at the minute. I don't know whether they can hear me through the wall, but some of you will be on maybe next month or the month after. Strive for excellence as you make your preparation and your presentation. What about helping this weekend with the one big weekend where I think all your youth work is coalescing, if that's the term. Everything's happening this weekend, and then clay, is it? I must find out what that stands for. It's like s'mores last week. I'm learning all a totally new vocabulary here in Windsor, but that's beginning to happen. Are you involved in that? Strive for excellence in that. If you're a deacon in the church, strive for excellence in the ministry that you have here. Elders, strive for excellence in everything that you do. But in it all, appreciate that you are nothing, and the Lord is everything. Hudson Taylor, name very well known to us, famous missionary to China, was scheduled to speak at a large church on one occasion, the person who was introducing him, introduced him in eloquent and glowing terms. He told the large congregation all that this great missionary had accomplished in China, and then presented him to the congregation as our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. I am the little servant of an illustrious master. You see, authentic ministry is always self-effacing. So, that's the first thing for, I was going to say for our encouragement, Uh, perhaps I should say for our challenge, because the danger for all of us is that there can be too much of us in what we do for the Lord and not enough of Him. So, authentic ministry, self-effacing. Second thing, authentic ministry is Christ-centered. It is Christ-centered. Second part of verse 1, the Apostle says he came not with excellence of word and wisdom, then these words, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. Now, this is a phrase that he has already used, for example, in chapter 1 verse 6. Instead of engaging in rhetoric or philosophy, the Apostle was bearing witness, he says, to God. In other words, to who God is. Well, the Corinthians needed to learn that. Uh, and in this city, this pagan context, people in the streets needed to know who the true God was, and they needed to know what this God had done in Christ for their salvation. So, he, he is proclaiming the testimony about God. And then this very well-known statement in verse 2, for I resolved, we saw it on the screen earlier, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, let's slow the pace slightly at this point, because when Paul says, I resolved, or I decided, as it could be translated, it means that he made a deliberate conscious decision to focus on Christ and especially His cross. And we've got to ask the question this morning, why did he make that resolution? there is a theory which I want to share with you. And the theory is that here the Apostle Paul is repenting of the message that he preached previously in Athens. There, it is argued, he had majored on the theme of the knowledge of God and creation. And if you read Acts chapter 17, you can find out something about that. And so, Paul has come to the conclusion, the theory says, that his message then was far too intellectual it didn't really go down very well. It was an unmitigated failure. And so on his way to Corinth, Paul repents of that distorted gospel he had preached in Athens and instead determined to preach only the cross when he got to Corinth. That's the theory. And of course, it's nonsense. Paul's mission in Athens was no failure. On the contrary, there were clearly converts— and I refer you to Acts 17, verse 34. You've got a statement there of who they were. It doesn't just mention people in general, but actually mentions names, some of them quite important people. They were converts. Luke certainly gives no impression that uh, he thinks Paul's preaching in Athens was a flop, and in any case, Paul certainly did preach the cross, because you will know if you read that account in Acts 17 that he preaches specifically the resurrection. Now, I want to ask a question this morning. How can you preach a resurrection without first preaching the cross that precedes it? It seems rather odd to do that preach a resurrection in isolation, throw it into the vacuum? No, you preach the cross first, and then the resurrection follows. So, I say Paul did not change his tactics when he came to Corinth. He continued to proclaim the same message in the same way that he had done in all the cities of Asia Minor and Greece. He resolved to know nothing. Look at that phrase, to know nothing. What does that mean? Does that mean that every single sermon the Apostle Paul preached was just the cross and nothing else, and he never mentioned any other Christian doctrine? Well, of course not. It just means that he made the crucified Christ the primary focus of his preaching. Now, why did he do that? The answer seems to be that he knew that the message of the cross was not only the wisdom of God that brings to nothing all human wisdom— but best of all, it is the very thing that changes people's lives. That's the point. It's the wisdom of God that confounds human wisdom, but it changes people's lives. This gospel of a crucified Messiah was the very thing that the Corinthians needed. Mind you, it would conflict with their thinking. It would conflict with their pluralistic religion and their commercial and personal pride and their immoral lifestyle. It would certainly conflict. No wonder then Paul came weak and shaking with fear. But this was the message that Paul brought, the message that was needed in ancient Corinth. And so, I ask you today, do you realize that the same alternative faces us in our generation? Is the ministry in this church in Windsor, in the months that lie ahead, going to be characterized by the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness with God, or the wisdom of God, which is the cross of Jesus Christ? That's the stark alternative that presents itself to us here in this passage. The wisdom of the world that is foolishness with God or the wisdom of God that is the message of the cross. That's the alternative. Now, you say, how does that that work in our context? How does that flesh itself out? Well, let me make a suggestion. It's very easy to buy into the popular culture and make the central thing the agenda of the world. And so, what we do maybe as a leadership or maybe as a church or The elders and deacons meeting. What we do is we we try to assess our ministry on the basis of what people want, and then we shape things accordingly. So, it's what people want that dictates the agenda. One of the most successful products ever produced is this. Recognize it? Some people are smiling with disdain because you can see that this is an iPhone 3 and you're saying, wow, come on, get, get with it, guy. This is terrible. We're on now to iPhone 6 and we've even got, well, I don't have one here, but you can get, you can get it all on your watch from now on. What good would that be to me? I'd need binoculars to see it, but uh, this is an iPhone 3. The iPhone was one of her, uh, has been one of the most successful products ever produced. It came from an idea by the late Steve Jobs, who is, among other things, famous for not asking customers what they want. In 1985, he said this. We built the Apple Mac. Gordon's a great Mac man. We built the Apple Mac for ourselves, he said. We were the group of people who were going to judge whether it was great or not. We did not go out and do market research. 1997, He hadn't changed his tune. He said this, a lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Wow. Well, let me take you back a lot further than that. Henry Ford, car maker, okay. Henry Ford said this, if I had asked people what they wanted, they'd have said faster horses. Let me just say this. Our ministry in the church must never be dictated by what people want, but rather by what people need. You say, well, who's going to decide that? Where where are we going to find this? The answer is in this book. This is what people need. I could have all kinds of ideas about what people might need. None of them might be correct. None of them. Some might be close, but they still might not be correct. I've got to go to this book and say, what is God's revealed purpose for the church and for the world? And then seek to implement that with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Our ministry must never be dictated by what people want, but by what they need. We find it in Scripture, in, for example, the Apostles' ministry in Corinth. Authentic ministry is Christ-centered. And so, what I've got to do and what you folks have got to do is hold up your ministry against the light of this factor and examine it, Jesus Christ and His cross, and see whether our activities promote that or have little reference to it. So, that's the second thing. Remember the first? Authentic ministry, self-effacing. Authentic ministry in the second place, Christ-centered. And then thirdly, authentic ministry is Spirit-empowered. Verse 4 tells us that both Paul's message and the way he preached it were in contrast to the approach of the world, not therefore with wise and persuasive words, but instead, quote, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, that word demonstration is a technical word. It's found only here in the New Testament. It was used in the legal framework uh, to describe not just a a piece of evidence, but a proof, something that was a, a clincher, something that was an absolute certainty. In Greek rhetoric of the day, it meant a compelling conclusion to a well-argued case. So, what's the compelling conclusion to the preaching of the Apostle Paul? The clause there reads literally, of the Spirit and power it's interesting that in the writings of Paul, those two words are almost interchangeable. For example, chapter 5, verse 4, when you, say, when you read Spirit, power is almost a translation of that, and conversely, power, you can almost read Spirit. They're interchangeable. But our question is, in what way is the, the Spirit's power demonstrated? What is the, the clinching piece of evidence? What is the proof here? The answer, the changed lives of the people in the Corinthian church. That was the demonstration. That was the evidence. That was the proof. The fact that they had been irrevocably changed as they responded to the gospel was the living testimony that all their contemporaries could see. Then verse 5, so that, says Paul, your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. In other words, the goal or the purpose of all of this of God calling them, of the apostle preaching to them a message of the cross in weakness was so that they might rest not in human wisdom, but on the power of God. That's what disarms the wise and the powerful. That's what drives us to put our absolute confidence in Jesus Christ alone. So, where is power to be found in the church? Maybe our instinctive answer to that is it's found in powerful people, It's found in tremendous oratory. It's found in signs and wonders and miracles. But actually, Paul says, it's found in the message of the cross, proclaimed in humble dependence on God. I don't know why you think that sounds like a bit of a letdown. I mean, in the world in which we live today, people value the spectacular. They look for the thing that stands out the dramatic thing. And the message of the New Testament is the absolute converse of that. Foolish as it may seem, this self-effacing, Christ-centered ministry, as exemplified by Paul, makes a difference. It achieves something. It brings the very power of the Holy Spirit into operation. It is the vehicle that creates the church and sustains it. In Corinth, in the first century, and in Belfast, in the 21st. So, I say this in a day and age when there is so much talk about the Spirit and power. My friends in Windsor, don't get too worked up about brilliant gifts and abilities. Just resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and you will know the power of God. David Brainerd, the famous missionary to the American Indians, proclaimed this truth throughout his ministry. He said this, I never got away from Jesus and Him crucified in my preaching, and I found that once people were gripped by the meaning of Christ's sacrifice, I never had to say very much to them about how to change their behavior. that astonishing? I focused, he said, mainly on Christ and Him crucified. When people were gripped by that, I never had to say much about changing behavior. Why was that? Because this is where the power of God resides. This was the ministry for sophisticated Corinth. It's the ministry for Belfast. It's the ministry that you must engage in as you start out this September into a busy program of work, A ministry that is self effacing, Christ centered, and spirit empowered. Let's pray together.